listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, again, welcome. So glad you're here this morning. Again, my name's Clint. I'm one of the pastors here, and Mark should be back next week. And all God's people said amen. Yes, and uh, so thankful you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. Thankful you've joined us. We are continuing. We're in the middle of a series on the theology of salvation. And so we took last week off uh, a little bit, and so I want to kind of do a little review. Let's see what you remember. So we're studying theology of salvation. Does anyone remember the big $10 nerdy theological word for the study of salvation? So teriology, exactly. So if you want to be the life of the party, be sure and throw that word around a lot. Uh, soteriology, the, the study of salvation. Now that's, a, again, a big theological word for theologians, but who's a theologian? Everybody raise your hand. I'm a theologian. Here's why. All of you have thoughts, assumptions, beliefs about if you need to be saved. If you need to be saved from what? And how are you saved? And what's God's part in that? And what's your part in that? We all have thoughts and assumptions about that. And the question, So the question is not if we think and have beliefs about salvation. It's are we thinking rightly and accurately about what the Bible says about salvation? And so one way to break this down, we're going to break it down a little bit in a timeline. And so Mark started off talking about atonement. And so that's kind of studying, hey, what exactly happened to the cross? Or through Jesus' life, what exactly did Jesus accomplish and what was our need in that? And then he talked about calling, that kind of the way that we start to become aware of who God is and open to his revelation and understanding what salvation is. And so if you haven't listened to those, I encourage you to go back to the podcast, listen to those uh, first few sermons on this topic. Today we're going to talk about a topic, an area of salvation that is what we call in theology world, in philosophy world, a necessary conditional. It is a condition that Jesus is going to say is absolutely necessary if you are going to be saved. It's, you can kind of think of it like oxygen for a fire. You can have all the other right ingredients, but the necessary conditional for fire to happen is there has to be oxygen in there. That fire has to have oxygen. And so Jesus is going to say to us this morning, there's something that has to be true of you in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be a Christian. And it's not a lot of the things that we actually think they are or live like they are. So he's not, it's not, hey, stop uh, being, uh, having uncontrolled temper. Stop cussing. He's not going to say, start going to church or, you know, deal, hey, get, deal with all your depression and your anxiety, and then that'll make you a Christian. It's not even, hey, gain a good reputation for yourself or listen to 10 sermons a week and read every book at Lifeway. It's none of those things. What he's going to say is the necessary thing that must happen to you to be saved. We all learned from the old song, bullfrogs and butterflies. Bullfrogs and butterflies, they must be what? Who knows it? Born again. Should have had Casey and the band sing that this morning. We must be born again, or the theological term for that is regeneration. What Jesus is describing here in the episode we're going to unpack, what it means to be saved, listen guys, is no less than the dead being brought to life. That is salvation. So let's turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, and we're going to listen in on Jesus' conversation 
with a man named Nicodemus. Also, eventually we'll end up in Ephesians 2. So if you kind of want to put a bookmark there, we'll be there eventually. But we're going to start off for a little while in John 3. Let's start reading in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, we haven't gotten very far, but let's stop right there. We found out two things about Nicodemus. Number one, we found out he's a Pharisee. Now, if you've read much of the Gospels, you've probably heard Jesus get on the Pharisees and the Pharisees get on Jesus. Let's talk about what the Pharisees were. They were the most strict, conservative, religious sect in all of Judaism. Okay? And so... uh, If you lived back then, they were the most religious people you knew. That's the way to think about it. So if you were fasting once a week, guess what? They were fasting twice a week. If you were giving a tenth, 10% of all you had, guess what? They're giving 50%. If you memorized a few verses, that's great. They memorized the entire Torah from the time they were a little child. In fact, among the Pharisees, there was kind of this inner core in the day that held the belief that if just one of them could just for one day, one 24-hour period, keep all the laws and all the sub-laws that they had made along with it, keep all of those perfectly, that's what God was waiting on. One of them to keep all the law perfectly for one day, then he would see that and he would reward them by sending the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And a lot of people speculated that Nicodemus might have been part of that inner core, that intersect, doing all they can, all their effort, their whole life, they are obsessed with, dedicated, living perfectly for one day. We also learn, though, that John says he's a leader of the Jews. That meant he was in the Sanhedrin. It's a political office. And so Jerusalem back then was under the head of a Roman emperor, but then he would delegate some power to local officials. And so it's kind of like our Senate, our House of Representatives, something like that. It's a, it's a governing body made up of, uh, from the people. And so Nicodemus was in that governing body. He was, uh, he was in the Sanhedrin. Essentially, y'all, what John is saying is he's the man. He's the most moral, good, respected person anyone new. And by the way, FYI, he's very influential and very powerful. That's who this man is. Jesus is having a conversation with the best of the best. That's what's happening here. So let's keep going. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we learned that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Why is he coming at night? He's trying to hide a little bit. Y'all, Nicodemus is supposed to have answers. He's not supposed to have questions, right? And also there's this whole theme throughout the book of John of light and darkness. And those who know Jesus and are found in him, they are in light. And those who are far from God, those who do not know Jesus, they are in darkness. So Mr. Answer Man, Mr. Religious, Nicodemus, John is trying to say he's groping around in the dark. He He has answers. He, does, he has questions. He doesn't have the answer to. But you may notice he doesn't just come out and ask a question. It's not a question here. But you know what? Jesus is going to give him an answer anyway. And there's enough here that I think that process of calling that Mark talked about a couple of weeks ago, you can see it beginning in Nicodemus. He's calling Jesus rabbi. He's saying, I know you're from God. Let's pick it back up in verse 3. So Jesus knows the questions in his heart. So Uh, Nicodemus didn't ask ask it, but Jesus is going to answer it. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, 
Truly, truly. Y'all, that truly, truly, that's biblical speak for buckle up. I'm about to drop a truth bomb on you right here, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says you must be born again. The translation could also be born from above. And probably what Jesus is saying is both. You do have to be born again, and that new birth is from above. We'll see that as this unfolds. But this is the necessary conditional. This is a thing that has to happen. It has to be true of you. And without this, all your efforts, they don't matter. You cannot see the kingdom of God without this. Think of all Nicodemus was doing to see the kingdom of God. More dedicated than I've ever been about anything in my life. His whole world, his every waking hour was about performance and perception. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know your resume, Nicodemus. I'm well aware of it. It won't matter unless you're born again. Steve, you want to start a fire? You can have all the kindling, all the matches, lighter fluid, yay, even a flamethrower. If there's no oxygen, there's no fire. Without being born again from above, there is no salvation. To which Nicodemus responds essentially by saying, huh? Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is totally confused, and you can understand why. Remember, he only knows performance. Like every other religion in the world, I do good and God rewards me. I do bad and he punishes me. So when he comes to Jesus, you know what he's fully expecting Jesus to do? He is coming to Jesus, fully expecting Jesus to tell him the next thing he has to do. Just tell me what to do. I'll add it to the list and I will do it, Jesus. So Jesus throws this thing out, be born again. Well, how am I supposed to do that? That's essentially what Nicodemus is saying. How am I supposed to do that? And think about it. What did you do to earn, orchestrate, achieve your birth? Nothing, right? Nothing. What's happening right here, men and women, is Nicodemus has just had his world rocked. I came to this person who's supposed to be from God to tell me what to do to get this the Messiah coming, and he's telling me something that's impossible for me to do. But Jesus isn't done with him. So to help him understand, Jesus is going to take a deep dive into the Old Testament. Why? Because those are the scriptures Nicodemus knew from heart. And so he, Jesus continues in verse 5. Jesus answered, let's try this again. Truly, truly, buckle up. I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, y'all, this phrase, water and Spirit, has caused all kinds of arguments with all kinds of people. Some say he's talking about natural birth and then spiritual birth. Some say he's talking about baptism. But remember, remember who he's talking to. This is a one-on-one conversation with Nicodemus. What he said would have meant something to Nicodemus. In fact, it would have meant something so clear and so astounding, his jaw would have dropped. He would have gasped when Jesus said this, because he knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 36. Maybe it is a well-known, maybe the most well-known prophecy in all the Old Testament amongst the Jews who were looking for 
the Messiah. Let's turn there real quickly. We'll have the verses on the screen. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. See if you can see the water in the Spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was what all of Israel was hoping for and had been hoping for for thousands of years. Why? Because for thousands of years, over and over and over again, despite all their efforts, despite how hard they tried to keep the law, they couldn't do it. Their hearts kept going wayward. They kept finding that they uh, loved the blessings of the land God had given them more than they loved God himself. They kept finding that they kept pursuing and chasing the same idols that all the other people around them were chasing. And you know what? They kept sacrificing animals over and over and over again, only to turn back to their sin. All the sacrifices couldn't fix their hearts. They loved their sin, and they kept pursuing it. Is this sounding familiar? And so through Ezekiel, God promised a time that he would come, and he would cleanse them from their sin, and he would give them a new heart. And he follows up chapter 36. Next, right after that, chapter 37, is this wonderful picture of new life, this picture of regeneration, the valley of dry bones, where God takes Ezekiel and looks out over this valley of dry bones. Why are they dry? They couldn't be more dead. They are dry. There is not an ounce of flesh or blood or anything that has life left on them. They are uber dead bones. And Ezekiel looks to God And he asked essentially the same question Nicodemus is asking. How can these bones live? How can a man be born? Again, that would take a miracle. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, exactly, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the bringer of blessing in the Spirit of God. I'm the one who gives life to the dry bones. I bring new birth from above. And when Nicodemus heard this, you can almost see his jaw hit the floor. This is what God had promised to do all along. Bring new life. So let's pick back up on their conversation. Jesus continues in verse 6. He's still trying to help Nicodemus understand. Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter here. He says, Nicodemus, your issue is flesh is flesh, and all it can produce is more flesh. That's the best that it can do. You can't perform your way into spiritual birth. So I know you fast twice a week. I know you memorize all the scriptures. I know you go to extreme measures to be a really, really, really good person. But if it's just from you, it's just more flesh. It's just more of the same. What you have to be born again is of the Spirit. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And to help us understand that, he, he compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. And there's a play on words. So the word for Holy Spirit and word for wind are the same word. 
And he says, the Holy Spirit, it's like the wind. And he tells us two things about the wind. Number one, you can't control it. It comes, it goes. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's headed, where it's going to stop. You are not in the driver's seat when it comes to the wind. And if you think about it, that's the exact opposite of Nicodemus' relationship with the law, isn't it? See, Nicodemus' relationship with the law, it's I study every letter of the law, and then I study every book written about every letter of the law until I'm an expert. And then I know everything about it, and, and then I control, I'm in control. I understand it, I perform it, I do it, and I earn my way into the kingdom by being in control. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 your flesh cannot control my spirit. You cannot regenerate yourself. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The second thing he tells us about the wind is its effects are unmistakable. Oh, you hear it. It makes a sound. You may, it may be a little mysterious. You may not understand it, but its effects are unmistakable. You know what's interesting? If you ever hear an eyewitness account of someone who survived a, a direct hit or a near direct hit from a tornado, you know what more often than not, you know what they describe? Not the sight of it, the sound. The sound it makes, especially if it's at night, you hear it long before you see it. And they'll describe it like a freight train. So loud it overwhelms all of your other senses. Jesus, and Jesus is saying here, listen, when my spirit moves, you hear it. Its effects are unmistakable. Dead bones, dry bones come to life when my spirit works. You know what the evidence of that new life is? Throughout the book of John, the evidence of the Spirit's work in you, the first signs of life, you could say, are belief. And so this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that is the first signs of life. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in you, changing your heart. Well, you know, Jesus here, this this conversation is full of imagery and pictures But exactly what does that mean when we say we're born again, we're given new life in Christ? For that, we're going to turn to Ephesians. We're going to hear from Paul, ironically, another former Pharisee, where he talks about the same thing, being born again. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. We'll start in verse 1. He says, and you were dead. Dead how? In the trespasses and sins. First, let's stop and say, let's understand what death is in Scripture. When the Scriptures talk about death, it's not ceasing to exist. Death throughout Scripture is separation. So you think of the Garden of Eden. Day you eat this fruit, you shall die. So they ate the fruit and then immediately dropped down like a sack of potatoes and ceased to exist. No, that's not what happened. What happened? They were separated from God and from paradise in the garden. They were kicked out. World's first bouncer set up in his place, but it didn't even matter because they were, y'all, they were so far separated, they couldn't even find where it was again. It's that separation. And that's even a way to understand physical death. Physical death is the unintended, unnatural separation of our bodies from our souls, and we die. It's separation. So if that's true, regeneration is a bringing back into fellowship. It's a reuniting of what was once separated. That's, that's what Paul means when he says death here. Let's keep going. So in which, that's the trespasses and sins, you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So let's pause again. We're three verses in. What have you contributed to your salvation so far? Sin. That's our big contribution. Our sin, our wickedness, our rebellion, our offensiveness, our selfishness. That's all that's coming from us so far. In fact, he says we have sins and trespasses. So there are two words, one meaning our uh, mistakes, our whoops-a-daisies, the other meaning our high-handed, outright, in the face of God, rebellion. He says those things, those sins and those trespasses, you walked in those. That was your daily life. All your actions, all your movements were sin. And so you're not just trying to be a good person. You're not just trying to make the best of your situation. That's not what the Bible says about us. In fact, Paul's going to say in Romans, you know what we, each and every one of us do? We willfully suppress the truth. God puts truth out there, and we do our best to shove it away because we want to keep walking in our sin. We are not neutral. In fact, he says, you follow the prince of the air, which he means Satan. So you think you're well-meaning and independent? Guess what? You're not. You are a servant of God's enemy. He says you, you live in the passions of your flesh. That same flesh that Jesus is talking to Mr. Religious Nicodemus about, that's the flesh he is talking about. And all it does is make you follow your own passions. And flesh just keeps giving birth to more flesh. And by the way, that can include religious activity. That's what he's trying to tell Nicodemus. In fact, you can, you can be here right now, simply motivated by a desire for your own reputation, simply to bribe God for your own comfort. You can absolutely do those things. That's what Nicodemus was doing. And if I perform and get it good enough, God will have to send his Messiah. He says, all of these things, we were by nature. So not just on your bad days, not just when you get off on the wrong side of the bed or don't get enough sleep, on your molecular DNA level, this is what you were. Men and women, this is a description of our death, the death that all of us live in apart from Christ. That's what Paul's describing. But then comes the best two words, definitely in the New Testament, probably in all of literature, but God. Let's pick it back up in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith. This is not at your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He made us alive, men and women. When did he do that? While we were still dead. While we were still those dry bones, dead, separated from God in our sins. That's when he did it. Why did he do it? Because we're so smart? Because we're so well-meaning? Because we're so attractive? No, because he loved us. I love the way Paul says this, the love with which he loved us. He has all of this love for us, and he wielded that love. He picked it up, and he used it for us. How did he do it? With Christ. He says twice that we are with Christ. Once he says we are in Christ. What Paul is trying to communicate here is that new life is only true for us 
because it was first true for Christ. And we're with Him. We're in Him. And so think about it this way. Because we were separated from God, Jesus had to come to us. That's His incarnation. And then He had to experience the same death and separation that we do. So He died. That was His death. But then He had to bring us back and reunite us with God. And that is His resurrection. Here's what's so important to know and we so often miss when we think about our salvation, men and women. His resurrection wasn't just for him. It was for you because you are in him. This is the way the writer 1 Peter puts it. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope through, how did he do it? the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Men and women, this is why salvation isn't simply Jesus died for my sin. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely part of it. But it's also about he lives. He rose again. That is equally a part of our salvation. So you can think of Jesus kind of like this guy, the Kool-Aid man. You know the Kool-Aid man? Oh, yeah. Bust a hole through the brick wall. Y'all, when Jesus rose from the dead, he, it was like he busted a hole through our death and separation from God for us to follow. Because we're with him, right? He did a Kool-Aid man through death. And so the gospel isn't simply Jesus died for my sins. It's he died for my sin and he rose again to give me new life. So I can be born again from above. If that's true, if salvation is nothing less than the dead coming back to life, how does that impact that Christian walk today? I think of three ways, and none of these have alliteration, so we'll just have to power through. Sorry about that. The first is this. Stop trying to bring spirit out of flesh. Stop trying to do what you are powerless and cannot do. And I would say this particularly to someone, if you're here and you're kind of like Nicodemus, Kind of, maybe you feel that call a little bit, but you have questions. Maybe you're not real sure where you stand with God. Here's what I would tell you. No one here who's a Christian is a Christian because they're particularly good, talented, nice, lovable, smarter than anyone else. None of that. No, no, no. Anyone here is a Christian is so because the Holy Spirit gave them life when they were dead. If that's true, you are not going to become a Christian by your effort, by your sacrifice, by coming to church more, by trying your best not to sin, none of that's going to be effective. But you can believe. You can believe in his death and resurrection and what he did for you. And you can pray. You can pray for his Holy Spirit to change your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That's what you can do this morning. The second one I'd say to those of us who are here who are Christians is this. Get over your fear of evangelism. I read a few studies this week. They, said that, they all say the same thing. All Christians think it's important to share faith, to share the gospel. And we are doing it less and less. And it is. It is a big issue in the church today. No one wants to share their faith. No one wants to share the gospel. And people in our culture are picking it up less and less from other places. And so they're just not hearing it. There's a couple reasons for that. One of those reasons, I think, is we tend to be pretty individualistic, and so we think our faith is just about ourselves. And so as long as I'm good with God, I don't know, he'll sort it out with, with those other people. They're on their own. Let me tell you, men and women, 
That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you're going to live that way, just gather all the Bibles that you own, get out some scissors, and just cut out the Great Commission, because that's how we end up living. You know, the Bible says that we should always, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That's how we should live. But here's the second, and I think most common reason, we don't share our faith. We're afraid. Y'all, we are so afraid of messing it up, of saying the wrong thing, of embarrassing ourselves and our church and all of Christendom. I don't know. Like, what if I don't have the answer? And what if my life doesn't match the answer? Right? Now, for those of us who experience that, and I experience that fear, these passages should come of, with great comfort to us. Because if what Jesus and Paul are saying is true, it's not about us getting it right, is it? My words, no matter how wonderful or terrible they are, do not have the power to give someone new life. They do not have the power to regenerate someone. It doesn't matter how eloquent I am, I cannot argue someone into heaven and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means for you and me? That means we can evangelize, we can share the gospel, we can share our faith with fearlessness. We have nothing to fear. And that should actually motivate us to do it more. Because you can watch the Spirit do something through you that you can never do on your own. Finally, I'd say this, and this is important for everyone here in our church today. Make the church about new life. Make what we are doing here about new life. See, there's a natural tendency when we think about church, because we do, we do a lot of things. And so there's a tendency when we think, okay, what's the church for? What does it do? We think, well, it provides activities for every age and stage. It teaches morals to our kids. It, it helps meet needs out there in the community, and it provides good music, and it provides a sermon that's hopefully not too long. Listen, we, we do all of those things, absolutely, but we have to be, always be very, very clear about why we do them. All of those things are means. They are not the end. They are just the means. See, the end of, of all the things we do is to carry on the work of Jesus, nothing less than the dead coming back to life. Do you know what Jesus did right before he ascended? He did something fascinating. He said, hey, I'm going to go up there for a while, okay? But that's actually a good thing that I'm leaving because I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. And so that same Holy Spirit that brings the dead back to life, where does he reside today? In each in every believer. He has empowered all of us to use all of us to bring the dead back to life. And so that means for you, let's say you find yourself in a classroom somewhere, maybe with some kids. You are not there just to babysit, just make sure they're well-behaved, to make sure nobody spills their Kool-Aid, get through the lesson. Those are all ends, or those are all means. You are there in the end so that through you, the Spirit can give someone new life. That's why you're there. If you find yourself at a back-to-school fair, maybe sorting 700 pairs of shoes in some closet somewhere, listen, we want you to work diligently at that so that the Spirit can work through you to give someone new life. And then if you, I don't know, find yourself sitting in a Sunday morning service, listen, we're not here so you and your kids can learn some morals so that we can all sing songs that we know. We're here so the Spirit can change you from dead in your sin to alive 
with Christ. That's why we gather here this morning. That's why the church exists. That's the end of everything that we do here. You know what my favorite story about Nicodemus is? It's actually not the one we just read where we first meet Nicodemus. It's actually the last time we see Nicodemus. In John 19, you know what he's doing? He's there with another man. He's taking Jesus' body off of the cross to prepare it for burial. And you can almost imagine it. Jesus' body that is bloody, broken, bruised, way up on that cross. And he's got to get a ladder. He's got to get somebody. He's got to climb up. And he's got to take those arms off. And he's got to drape that body all over his to get that body down. Men and women, what a better picture of the journey of Nicodemus. You have the life-giving blood of Jesus all over him. This man of performance has given it all up. He has forsaken his reputation all to get Jesus' blood all over him. Here's what I say to you this morning in closing. Forget your resume. Forget the things you've done. Forget all the things you haven't done. Is the life-giving blood of Jesus all over you? Have you been born again? If not, simply believe and you can be. If so, the only appropriate response is worship. So we're going to close the service today with a way that Jesus gave all of us to worship and to remember that he has given us new life. And we're going to take communion together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.